Uh, but as we wrap up uh, 1 Samuel, uh, I'd like you to, to consider, uh, as we have been for much of this time, uh, Saul and David. Uh, their lives uh, really are formed and forged uh, with each other. Uh, when we first meet Saul and David, uh, we really meet a king and a nobody. Um, and that's encouraging back then because some of us feel like nobodies uh, now and again. Uh, but the king is Saul and David is a nobody, a shepherd boy. Uh, and in that portion of this story of Saul uh, and David, uh, Saul is superior to David and both are very happy and content. Uh, David kills Goliath, great, fantastic as far as Saul is concerned. Uh, he conquered the giant that I was unwilling to face. Uh, David plays his harp for me, that's great. Uh, wonderful that David would provide that service. Uh, but their relationship is one of superior and inferiority. And the amazing thing is both are content at this stage. They're both content. Uh, but in Act number 2, as we read 1 Samuel, uh, the relationship begins to change. Uh, David grows. David grows into uh, a mighty warrior. Uh, David wins battles and the acclaim of people. Uh, we always remember that song. Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. Uh, Saul's antenna rises, and instead of seeing uh, his inferior, he now sees a rival, and he feels jealous. There's jealousy. Uh, as long as David stayed in his place, everyone was happy. Uh, but David's success uh, made Saul feel threatened, and the relationship changed. Uh, most recently, we've been in the third act of David and Saul's life together, uh, the king and the outlaw. Uh, now Saul sees David clearly as an enemy. Now David does not. Uh, in fact, the only reason he is an outlaw is because Saul is the king. Uh, and the king makes the laws. It's kind of convenient that way. And so the king decides you're an outlaw. Uh, you're an outlaw irrespective of what you have actually done. And so David has been on the run. Uh, but even in this, while Saul sees David as an outlaw, as an enemy, uh, that's not how David sees Saul. He is unwilling to strike back uh, against King Saul, even when given an opportunity twice. Uh, well, tonight we, or this morning, we consider the final act, Saul's last act. How will it play out? What is the result of Saul's life? Uh, as we look at this act, to be honest, we see the sad ending of a promising life. You know, too often when we read scripture, we, uh, we somewhat know how the story ends. And so we read the middle, uh, in light of the end. Uh, but the reality is Saul had every potential given to him. Uh, God had chosen him as king, anointed him, uh, given him his blessing uh, through Samuel. Uh, he had made promises to Saul to establish his kingdom. Uh, but now as we read the end of his life, uh, we see that he's fallen far, far, far short of what could have been. But even in that, I would suggest, as we read the last chapter of 1 Samuel, and this, eventually this first chapter of 2 Samuel, you will notice that the Bible does not give its villains black hats and its heroes white hats, one always pure and the other always evil. Uh, at the very least, that is not how David reads the situation. Um, and we'll see that in his response to Saul. Uh, but there is a fundamental difference between Saul and David, and one that I believe that we must learn from. 
Uh, the fundamental difference between, that I see between them, probably there are more than one, but the one that I would focus on today is how they make decisions, how Saul makes decisions and David makes decisions. Uh, one is guided by self-interest over and above all, and another uh, based on honoring God over and above all. And as we conclude Saul's life, we see what difference uh, a life lived with mine own interest in first place uh, dif what difference it makes versus a life made uh, to honor God. Uh, let's begin in 1 Samuel 31, uh, 1 through 7. It says, Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines, and they fell slain uh, on Mount Gilboa. Uh, Pastor Jared reminded us last week that this is where the armies of Israel were gathered uh, before they went down into the plain of Jezreel to fight against the Philistines, and now they're driven back into their own camp. It says in verse 2, the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malkishua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul says to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword, and he fell upon it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his own sword and died with him. Thus Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor-bearer, and all his men on the same day together. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled. And the Philistines came and lived in them. Well, in this chapter, we see Samuel's prediction from chapter 28. His picture, his prediction from beyond the grave comes true. Uh, Saul's sons are killed. Saul's army flees. And Saul is mortally wounded, uh, fearing, rightly fearing, I should say, the torture and humiliation of being captured by the Philistines. Uh, Saul asked his armor-bearer to end his life. His armor-bearer, however, refuses, having more respect for Saul and his place um, as God's anointed, as his king, um, and just the taking of his life, that he says it fears greatly. And so Saul uh, the, the armor-bearer refuses, and Saul takes his own life. You know, in this story, I see uh, a danger. Uh, a danger when we act out of self-interest. And by self-interest, I mean when we act as if uh, what uh, happens to me is of first and primary importance. Uh, when self-interest dictates my choices, the first danger I face is that I forget that I am not alone. Uh, when self-interest dictates my choices, I forget uh, that I am not alone. You know, for Saul did this again and again through his life, in life and in death. In life, uh, Saul, to be honest, did some good. In a moment, we're going to be referred back uh, to one of those uh, good things that Saul accomplished. He did some good, he did some bad, but he almost always did what seemed right to him and right for him. Uh, all of us make choices based on what is right, seems right to us. That's why we decide what we're going to do. It seemed like the best thing to do. Uh, but Saul, in his self-interest, does what's right to him 
and he chooses what is right for him as he understands it. You know what? The good that he did, he defeated Israel's enemies, the Philistines, in many battles. Uh, when he felt the momentum was on his side, he was ready to charge into battle. Uh, but when he feared that it was slipping away, he offered a sacrifice that only a priest should have offered. He said, ah, I, and he stepped in and made that, that offering. Uh, uh, Saul defeated the Amalekites at God's command, uh, but went tempted to keep the very best of what the Amalekites had, uh, he gave in and blamed others for their mistake. Uh, and even in death, Saul says once again, what seems best to me, well, my life is no longer worth living, and my judgment is all that matters. And so he takes something into his hands that is not his to give. Now, when I say that, there are, the reality is that many people say, no, perhaps that is his choice. It's his life. That's all that matters. Uh, but from even the beginning of 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 6, and Hannah's prayer of gratitude for the son Samuel that God gave her. Uh, she wrote, the Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and he raises up. Psalm 31, 15 says, my times are in your hand. Uh, the reality is, while our life is our life, it is a gift that we have received from God. Uh, it is not solely ours. And in fact, the decision uh, to take life is a serious and significant one that Scripture only gives occasion for people to do so in very rare circumstances. Now, I know these are very touchy issues, and I certainly believe there's a difference between causing death and allowing death. Uh, but for Saul to take his life in his own hands, uh, even his armor-bearer recognized that this was not right. Uh, one writer has said, for one human to end his own life or the life of another because of suffering, is a faithless attempt to tell God that he has not brought on death soon enough. Only faith understands the justice of God when he allows suffering. As terrible as it sometimes may be, suffering accomplishes the purpose of God both in the sufferer and those who minister to him. No matter how long it lasts, our suffering will always be much shorter than the eternity for which it prepares us. Saul forgot that he was not alone. Saul acted out what seemed best to him, not caring what God's word had to say or what was most honoring to God. And the impact was not just on him. His decisions touched his son, his sons, the armies of Israel, and devastatingly, and finally, his armor-bearer. Uh, while it's true that Saul did not order his armor-bearer to kill himself, uh, Saul and each of us touched the lives of others. Our example always makes a path easier to imagine or more difficult for others. When I think I am acting just for myself, I am deceived. As a parent, your kids are watching. As a worker, your shop is watching. As a student, your classmates are watching. But you say, nobody cares, nobody noticed. It's not true. That is not true. The ripples of our life always spread in ways that we do not see and we do not control once an action is done. We are not alone. You know, we really do know this deep in our hearts. If we think back in our own lives, we think of examples of people who have touched us, uh, maybe unwittingly, uh, maybe insignificantly to them, but to us they made a difference in our own lives. Our, we know that we are not alone. What we forget is that our lives are touching others as well. 
Um, when I thought of my own life, I was reminded of a time when I was a freshman in high school. Uh, now, when I was a freshman in high school, I was uh, a five foot one and probably 106 pounds uh, back in those days. Not the big guy that you see before you today. And uh, believe it or not, um, uh, I was struggling to make my school's soccer team uh, in those days. Uh, to qualify on our soccer team, we had to uh, do a four-mile run uh, in our training camp in a certain amount of time, and that was difficult. Right? Short legs uh, in those days. And uh, it was very challenging. In fact, we got to the last day of soccer camp when we had to accomplish it at a certain time, and I was struggling once again uh, to keep going, keep moving, and to make the time that was required. Uh, there was a senior on our team, I remember his name to this day, Steve Vandenberg, and uh, he probably finished his run 20, 25 minutes before, got something to drink, went out for breakfast, came back, and he saw me struggling. And uh, Steve, against his self-interest, nobody likes running that much, nobody, almost nobody, and uh, he came back and he ran the last half a mile with me and said, keep going, you can do it, keep moving. And he got me to the finish line to accomplish that. You know what? I think if Steve were here today, I don't think he even remembers that. Guess who does? I, look at my voice. I hate it when it does that. You hear that? My voice is cracking. A silly thing that happened 25 years ago, but one life rushed into another life, and it changes that person's life. Not about a soccer team, but about a selfless act that another person does, it touches a life. It's happened to you, and it's happened from you to others. We are not alone in this world. And so our decisions, they don't happen in a, a vacuum. And so when I act solely as if I do what is best for me, what I want, I am missing something powerful and significant, the impact that I have on the lives of others. Assault did. Uh, his train wreck of decisions, of self-interest, uh, led Israel to defeat, led his sons to death, uh, led to his decision uh, resulting in the premature death of his own armor-bearer in his final act. Saul forgot that we are not alone. Others are watching, and some are following. Saul acted out of self-interest. Well, let's continue uh, this story. Uh, if we continue in reading 1 Samuel 31, we see that the next day the Philistines, they came to the battlefield. It's time to, to claim the spoils of their battle, to take what was value. And when they came upon the body of Saul, oh, we can imagine their delight. Israel's champion is dead. And he's dead on his own sword. Uh, they were eager to trumpet their victory over the defeated. Uh, they took... Uh, actually, it doesn't say whose sword they used, but they took and they cut off his head, it says in 1 Samuel 31.9. It says they took the body, and later we learned the body of his sons, and they took them to one of their leading towns. Uh, it's on the map I think we have here. Uh -huh. there, there, oh, there, oh, there it is. Uh, they took, uh, this battle was on Mount Gilboa, and they took uh, Saul's body uh, to the town of Beth Sheen on the map. And it says that they... Uh, pegged it to the wall so that all could see that Israel's king and champion had been defeated by them. Saul was right uh, to fear their mistreatment. Uh, it says later they took his armor and they put it in the temple of one of their gods, trophies of their victory, of their power, and the power of their gods. But then the story takes a strange twist. 
In verse 11 it says, when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan, and they came to Jabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. Now, who are these men uh, of Jabesh-Gilead? Uh, we see the city not too far. Were they just conveniently located? Uh, well, if we remember from our previous study uh, of 1 Samuel, uh, back in 11, Saul had just begun anointed as king. Um, he was really reluctant. Uh, in fact, it says that he went back, and he went back to his regular way of life after having been chosen as king. Uh, but shortly thereafter, the Philistines attacked this town of Jabesh-Gilead. They surrounded it. Uh, and the, the leaders of Jabesh-Gilead said, we surrender. We give up. Uh, but the Philistines, it says in 1 Samuel 11, were unwilling to accept the terms of their surrender unless the residents of Jabesh-Gilead, uh, each and every one, would gouge out the right eye, would gouge out their right eye. Um, probably designed to humiliate them. Possibly folks have said that there's some uh, strategic advantage at which an, a right-handed archer would not be able to fire uh, an arrow accurately without his right eye. Uh, but for whatever reason, these were the terms of their surrender. And the valiant men of Jabesh-Gilead in 1 Samuel 11 said, okay, we'll do it. Uh, just give us seven days to see if, to see if someone else, else will rescue us. Uh, that was their response. Well, in 1 Samuel 11, we read that this was one of Saul's finest hours. Saul, when he received this news, he said, we must do something. We are one people. And so he roused the armies of Israel, came in and defeated the Philistines, and rescued the people of Jabesh-Gilead. And so we come to 1 Samuel 31. And we see that the timid men of Jabesh-Gilead have been turned into valiant men who would risk their lives in enemy territory to defend even the body of their king. Saul's courageous rescue of their city earned their loyalty and transformed the timid into the valiant men of Jabesh-Gilead. And this is the second lesson that we can learn about self-interest. Actually, it's of a, a different course. Uh, when honoring God guides my choices, virtue increases. The men of Jabesh-Gilead, in a sense, the pragmatist might said, what's the use? Saul's already dead. It really doesn't matter. The battle has been lost. Let's regroup for another day. But the men of Jabesh-Gilead said, you know what? That's a man that we owe loyalty to. An abstract concept. What's the worth and value? What would you pay for loyalty? Uh, well, if you have to pay for it, it's not worth anything. Uh, but if you have it, it's something that is good and powerful. And that is what we miss when we are guided by self-interest. Choices that seem to be of no benefit to me, uh, loyalty, self-sacrifice, unseen diligence, they ripple into the lives of others and they multiply virtues like loyalty and courage. They lift uh, others up in ways that are unseen but significant and important. Uh, they provide a model for virtue. Uh, you know, I thought of this in a, a strange story. Um, how many, the name, the, many years ago, not too many years ago, the Tigers, my Detroit Tigers, had a pitcher on their team by the name of Armando Galarraga. Does anyone remember the name Armando Galarraga? There's just a few. 
Pastor Chris always tells me, don't use illustrations that people don't know anything about. But I do it anyway. Because um, it's my illustration, so we'll use it anyway. Uh, Armando Galarraga was a middling pitcher, average, maybe even slightly below average for the Tigers. Uh, but if you remember him, there was one night when everything worked. Uh, and for 26 batters in a row, the first 26 batters of the game, he got each and every one out. He was on his way to a perfect game. Uh, the 27th batter uh, hit a uh, grounder to the second base side of the infield. And there was a close play at first base, and the umpire, uh, by the name of James Joyce, called the runner safe. Now, this was the days before there was instant replay. Uh, but there were TV cameras on it. And immediately, people looked at the cameras and discovered that the umpire had clearly and unequivocally made a mistake. No one disputed that the runner should have been out, and the perfect game, a significant, comp uh, a significant com uh, accomplishment, one of those, thank you, Bertha. Uh, I appreciate that you're with me here. Uh, an amazing accomplishment, a rare accomplishment, uh, really uh, the highest pinnacle of success for a pitcher. It should have been accomplished, but it wasn't. Uh, because an umpire made a call and there was nothing that could be done about it. How would you respond? How do you respond when things happen that aren't fair? That's not right. It shouldn't be like that. Um, you have a choice when that happens. You know, self-interest says, fight to the end. Be bitter. Change the rules. Change the laws. Something has to be done. Uh, this can't stand. And there were people who were certainly saying those very things. Uh, but the pitcher in question, Armando Galarraga, uh, after, at the point of attack and at the, after the game, uh, both times he said, you know what? We all make mistakes. It was not meant to be. I'm disappointed. But he was doing the best that he could, and I was doing the best that I could. I forgive this umpire. The umpire, to his credit, admitted his mistake. In fact, he was broken up and tearful. Uh, uh, the evening of, he said, I cost that young man something uh, that would be incredibly significant uh, in his career. Uh, the next day, uh, the Tigers brought this pitcher and this umpire uh, before the game to uh, bring the lineup cards to home plate, and they received a standing ovation. Uh, it was very powerful uh, in that moment. Uh, why was it powerful? Really, shouldn't the rules being changed Shouldn't something have been done? Shouldn't the wrong have been righted? In, in one sense, I want to say yes, but an act of forgiveness and grace and dignity and kindness. Uh, an example was shed that said, you know what, there's something that might be more significant than even a perfect game in baseball. Something that is more valuable and powerful. Uh, it's a message that I want my kids to hear, but more than just my kids, I'd like to hear it for myself. Uh, that the virtues... Uh, of forgiveness over anger means something. Faithfulness over vindictiveness. Working hard when no one is watching. Responding with faith in the midst of difficulty. It's hard to quantify the value of that. And often the right choice doesn't seem to be in our individual best interest. Uh, but the right choice is powerful and make virtue increase. Uh, the ripples of our lives strike others and provide a, a path that goes forward. Uh, to be honest, the, the visual 
uh, that I get of the impact that our, that our life makes is uh, uh, in, I have woods behind my house. And uh, in the winter, I can see for a long ways into the, uh, into the small woods behind my house. Uh, but it's amazing to me every summer, as all the ferns and the blackberries and the uh, maple saplings and everything else that grow up, uh, it's almost diffi it's difficult to see into the woods and there's not a place to go. Uh, there's nowhere to go except for the fact that our family, we make paths. We make paths into the woods. Uh, what is a path? Uh, a path, a two-track if you prefer, uh, just means that somebody went this way and in doing so they tamped down the dirt and they stepped on a weed or a, something to break a path and then someone else came and it, that path uh, gets a little bit firmer and a little bit wider and then there's a, a way forward in that path. Um, and that path gives a direction. You know what? In our lives, our choices are either clearing a path towards virtue and goodness or clearing a path, like Saul's life did, in a different direction towards self-interest and selfishness and of thinking of only ourselves. And, and while we think that we're just wandering around in our own life doing our own thing, the reality is we're setting a path that others can follow behind uh, that makes uh, our choices seem more viable, more possible, more plausible, or less so. And, and when we choose poorly, uh, even in that, uh, we are creating a path that says, you know what, maybe that's something that I could do. Maybe that was the right decision. It didn't work out so bad for them. Uh, but mere self-interest forgets that we're laying a path that others may follow behind, uh, whether we are aware of it or not. Um, and choosing rightly allows virtue to increase and virtue to grow. Uh, Saul, uh, the life of self-interest. Uh, well, this concludes the book of 1 Samuel. But we're going to venture in a little bit into 2 Samuel to complete the story of the end of Saul's life. Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 1. Uh, 2 Samuel focuses on the life of David. The life of David is king. We've been introduced to him, of course, in 1 Samuel. Uh, but in 2 Samuel, it is his story of his reign. Uh, and it begins, though, with the death of the previous king. 2 Samuel 1, it says, After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. And on the third day, behold, a man from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And he came to David, and he fell on the ground, and he paid homage to him. David said to him, where do you come from? And he answered, uh, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, how did it go? Tell me. Uh, apparently, Facebook was unaware uh, in those days of what was happening. It had not been posted and it required three days for news to travel from the north part of the country to the south. Um, the Amalekite answered, The people fled from the battle, and also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. Then David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him said, By chance I happen to be on Mount, Gil Mount Gilboa, and there was Saul leaning on his spear. And behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me. And I answered, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? I answered to him, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, Stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him, and I killed him. 
because I was sure that he could not live after, I, after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I brought them here to you, my Lord. Well, as we read 2 Samuel 1, we're, we're struck by the fact that this is a different story than we just read uh, across the page. Uh, what exactly is going on here? Uh, for the critic, they say, you know what? The Bible's just a collection of stories that people told. They're not really rooted in history. Uh, and sometimes the Bible doesn't even make a, a half-hearted attempt to try to, to make the stories match. Uh, the Bible is not trustworthy. Uh, well, the problem is when you're a critic, when you've decided you don't trust something, it's always easy to find fault. In fact, you will. You will always uh, find the problems rather than the solutions, even when there are solutions uh, readily available. Uh, as we put these two stories, uh, we say there are differences. While both are set on Mount Gilboa, one says that an armor-bearer was with Saul at his last, and the other says an Amalekite. Uh, one says that Saul was badly wounded. The, the latter says that he was mortally wounded. Uh, one says, and this most significant, that, that Saul's motivation uh, was he feared mistreatment uh, by uh, one who was uncircumcised. Uh, in the latter story, he says it's at his anguish at not dying fast enough, his anguish at his injuries. Uh, in one story, an armor bearer dies. In the other story, it ends with Saul's body uh, being plundered of its values. Uh, so what gives? Uh, is it possible for these stories to be come together? Uh, well, there's two possible solutions. One is uh, that it is conceivable that the story in chapter 1 uh, is true. Uh, that Saul's attempt to take his own life uh, lasted longer than he thought. Uh, and this Amalekite came upon him and shortly after, found he was still alive, and that Saul asked him to finish uh, what he had started. Um, that is possible that that is the case. Uh, however, it seems more plausible to me uh, that there's another way to read this story. Uh, is it not possible that the Amalekite simply lied? Uh, that in coming upon Saul the day after the battle and seeing him dead on his own sword, uh, he decided that there was a way to profit, for him to profit, for his own self-interest. Uh, that if he took something that, would that shows that he had been with Saul, and then he exaggerated his role in Saul's death, surely the man who Saul had spent the last probably decade of his life trying to kill, surely David would reward him. Unfortunately for him, he severely misjudged the situation. There's a lesson there for us. Uh, the lesson that I see is that narrow self-interest often leads me to misread the intents of others. Self-interest often leads me to misread the intents of others. Uh, the Amalekite assumed that David was guided by what guided him, his own self-interest. Uh, but he misread David. He assumed that everyone thought like him, had the same values as him. Uh, but David's response showed that there were other values at stake, other things that were important to him. And it probably made his blood run cold. Uh, David was stricken with grief at his seeming enemy's death. He mourned and wept. If we continued in reading, it said he and his men mourned and wept until the evening at the death of Saul. Self-interest often leads me to misread the intents of others. It, it, when I think only of myself, I, uh, the easy assumption is that other people are only thinking of, my, of themselves, and I often I assume the worst of their intents. Uh, I, I 
place my thoughts into their hearts and assume that that is what they are thinking. Uh, often because that's, if that is the way that I think, I can't imagine that they would think differently. Uh, I can't tell you how often uh, I have assumed, uh, perhaps from reading an email or from a conversation, wow, this person, they think this about me. They are mad at me. They're out to get me. They're angry at me. Uh, they don't care about me. Uh, I, I develop a, a, a very elaborate thought of what their intention is towards me uh, because I say that's how I would feel if I was that, if I had received that message or if I had said that myself. Uh, but the reality is I don't know what is in another person's heart. In fact, as I've gotten older, I've realized something. I've realized that I think more about me than anybody else does. Have you noticed that? Uh, I assume that their life is dictated by my actions, that my uh, accidental slight has got them, man, they're in a tizzy and they're upset about me, and uh, man, uh, that relationship, oh, it's terrible. Uh, but the reality is, uh, later on as I talked to them, I realized, you know what? After they, I was done talking to them, they didn't think about me for a long time. Uh, I think about me all the time, but they're not thinking about me, they're living their own life. Uh, but self-interest... I'm thinking about myself. You know what I assume that you're all thinking about? You're thinking about me too, and it's just not true. It's not true. Self-interest leads me to misread the intents of others uh, often. Uh, but instead, when I focus, as David did, on doing what is right in honoring God with my choices, uh, when I don't put my intentions into the hearts of others, uh, I find a better path, a better way forward. So how did David really feel about Saul? If we continue reading, uh, we see two things that indicated uh, David's temperament towards Saul. Uh, the first is uh, that Saul, David said, uh, by the testimony of your own words, I'm going to put you to death. You have struck down the Lord's anointed. Uh, the man that God had chosen as king, you chose to put to death. And so, uh, to be honest, whether he really did it or not, it was his own testimony that led to his death. Uh, what's interesting to me is that David showed that his decision not to strike Saul that we read about uh, two weeks ago uh, was not just a personal choice. That David said, well, you know, I wouldn't do it, man, but if somebody else got Saul, that would be awesome. That would be great. I could be king. Um, David said, no, it was wrong. It was wrong for me. It was wrong for him. It was wrong for anyone. Uh, David's principal decision uh, led him to say, you don't strike the one that God has chosen as king. Uh, secondly, uh, not just by a judicial act, but by David's own heart, he writes a song, a song of mourning uh, for the king. Uh, in verse 18, he writes, Your glory, O Israel, is slain in your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath, publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor field of offerings, once even the hills to mourn his death. For the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul was not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul, they were mighty warriors is what he's saying there, but now they are dead. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. 
You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put the ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Then he turns his attention to Jonathan. Jonathan lies slain in your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant you have been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perish. Uh, David's response to Saul's death was to lead his people in mourning for the king. Uh, what this reveals to me is a fourth lesson that we should learn uh, about self-interest. Self-interest so often guarded, guided by our feelings, but for David, his feelings were shaped by his convictions about God's will. David's feelings were shaped by his convictions about God's will. Uh, David believed two fund things very fundamentally and fervently. One is that Saul was the appointed king of his people. God had chosen him, and it was not in David's place to take that. Uh, secondly, he believed that even though he also had been anointed as king, the timing of, this, of his coming to the throne was to be in God's hands, not in his own hands. And because of those convictions, David's feelings were shaped by them and controlled by them. Uh, part of it, it I, I want to say that's unbelievable. Like, who would not say, finally, freedom, justice, vindication for me at long last? Uh, but for David... I believe he experienced very real, experienced and expressed very real grief over the death of Saul and what it meant. He, he saw the best of Saul, even as he fled from the worst of Saul, what he had accomplished. And so David sincerely and legitimately grieves the passing of, of Saul in this. David saw his, that his feelings uh, were not just about whether life is treating me right or feeding me poorly, but they were shaped by his convictions about God's will and about God's ways. Uh, and in, out of those convictions, Dave found the ability, David found the ability to mourn uh, the passing of Saul. You know, this week as I was meditating on this passage and studying, I had uh, occasion to go to a funeral of, uh, of Bonnie Buckner, who used to come to our church, has uh, sons who are still here, Mike and Steve and their families. And, uh, you know, pondering this passage of the end of Saul's life while uh, thinking about the life of someone else who was a, a person of faith, uh, I was just reminded that there is more than one way to pass from this life uh, to the next. Uh, in the funeral message, Pastor Shaw from North Casnovia Baptist, uh, he made the statement that our sorrow should be shaped, uh, should be guided by our theology. He said what we believe, our convictions that were true, they, it should shape our sorrow. Now that does not mean that we do not have sorrow in the passing of someone who is loved. Absolutely not. But if we believe things to be true about this life and the life to come and of what faith does and of forgiveness through Christ, if we believe those things to be true, it does shape and transform something that could be only grief into something that is hopeful and optimistic for the future. There is more than one way to pass from this life uh, to the next. For Saul, he said, you know what? My, I see my life is no longer worth living. I'm going to end it any way that I can. But as we as people of faith, as we face any decision in life, we say, you know what? It's not just in my hands. Uh, I believe things about God, and that 
shapes how I perceive this life and how I receive this life. And when I do that, it transforms my decisions. Now, it does not mean that I don't have to make decisions myself, what seems best to me. Uh, but what best to me is not all that matters. I also say, what matters? What brings honor and glory to God? Uh, what is in accord with what he has revealed in his word? And when I do that, and when I live in that truth, it shapes how I feel and how I respond. Uh, it shapes how I influence and impact others. It transforms our lives uh, when we are guided by our convictions about what God uh, has revealed. Well, how about you? I would hope, uh, I hope that as, the, uh, as I have spoken, and I believe that the Spirit of God meets with us uh, when we are gathered together as his church. Uh, as you think about your life, what guides you? Is self-interest what is best for you of first importance? Uh, or uh, does what most honors God in the decisions of our lives, is that significant? Does that get weighed in the balance? Uh, I understand sometimes it's difficult uh, to know, and we don't know uh, what is the best choice. There are decisions that are complicated and difficult, uh, but a life of faith is one that says, you know what, I'm not allowed to just decide based on what I think is best for me. Uh, I have to take God into consideration. I have to take into consideration of how this impacts others. And, and sometimes, even when life doesn't seem to make sense, I say, you know what, I'm going to respond in faith, in trust in God, uh, even if I don't understand it. It doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem just. Uh, but I'm going to trust God and even if I don't see what impact that has, I know that it is right before God, and God uses it uh, to impact others. Uh, let's, let's close.